Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Welcome back, my friends. Today, we are going to be returning to that incredible, incredible English epic, John Milton's Paradise Lost. Now, the section we're going to be tackling today in Paradise Lost is the section uh, in book three, the beginning of book three. So if you have your books, (laughs) crack them open unless you're driving on the freeway, in which case, please do not take out your books I will be reading from the beginning of book three, but let me just set up a little bit. So first, let's just remind ourselves of what we have said a little bit about John Milton. John Milton, born in 1608, lives through one of the most remarkable experiments in the English sort of project, which is the Commonwealth, this attempt at a Republican government. And Milton is very much involved in that Commonwealth. He is writing propagandist tracts. He is writing secretary letters as sort of a secretary of state to foreign powers during that time. But during this Commonwealth period, and then eventually under the protectorate of Lord Cromwell, Milton begins to, and then fully, loses his sight. By 1652, so that's the age of 44, He is completely blind. By the time the king is restored, that is the King Charles II is restored, the monarchy is restored, the Republican experiment fails. Uh, Milton has been blind for the better part of eight years. His life is spared after some special uh, pleading on behalf of a poet friend of his named Andrew Marvell. And Milton then basically ends up writing his greatest or his biggest, his most sort of epic works in a period of relative anonymity and exile. And then the exile that I'm really interested in is how he wrote Paradise Lost, for example, um, entirely during this uh, latter period of his life in which he was completely blind. So what we understand, what we know from our letters and the historical record is that he would he would dictate every single line of the poem to one of several different amanuensis. Andrew Marvell, the the poet and statesman who sort of talked uh, the king away from executing Milton, was one of those uh, sort of amanuensis who recorded these lines for him. His daughter also recorded these lines. He hired certain people to come in. But he would basically say, he said basically that he would wake up in the morning and he would have these lines in his mind and he would go downstairs and he would begin to speak these lines to the person who was available, and they would record this. He wrote all 12 books of Paradise Lost this way. Uh, You're talking about close to 12,000 lines of poetic text, um, all from his mind being dictated um, orally to those who were recording it, and then sort of trying to alter it slightly here and there afterward as a revision process. His blindness, though, doesn't just describe sort of this incredible feat of his uh, sort of poetic uh, accomplishment, but it plays a really significant role in the text itself. And I mentioned this when we did our introduction to Paradise Lost, but I want to really focus on it in book three. He has asked for divine aid to begin this project. That's a famous thing 
almost every single epic begins in a very, very, very similar way. Sing, O muse, or sing, O heavenly goddess, or sing, always sort of an entreaty to the muse to help the poet, right? The muses, the ones who give creativity, give understanding, give inspiration. So in the classical tradition of Homer or Virgil, um, the poet always entreats the muses um, to give them aid to their song, right? So for Milton, as a Christian, radical uh, Puritan, radical Christian. Uh, Milton evokes not the divine muse in some classical way, but he invokes the divine muse of the Holy Spirit. And so he entreats the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is the way that Milton's speaker, this figure that is in the poem itself, the way the speaker of the poem, which we don't want to confuse exactly with Milton, when you read poetry, you want to talk about the speaker of the poem. Uh, as a separate character, kind of like a narrator of a novel. Uh, oftentimes a narrator of a novel is its own character, you know, like Huck Finn narrating his own story. And sometimes that, that, that narrator is reliable, sometimes that narrator is unreliable, etc., etc. So Milton's narrator or speaker has this incredible role because he has said that the whole purpose of composing and telling Paradise Lost, this epic poem, was to justify the ways of God to men. To, to be able to bring to light, as it were, um, why God does what God does and how it is ultimately that there could be this fallen world that if you look around, you see all the earmarks of unbelievable suffering, confusion, all sorts of things. How is it possible that a benevolent God, a good and kind God, an omnipotent God, all-powerful, could have created a world that looks like this? How is that possible? If you ask people, that, that's a question that everybody struggles with who doesn't know uh, the scripture very well or who has trouble kind of wrestling with those ideas, those truths. It's a deep, classic question. How could there be suffering and there be this good, omnipotent God in charge of the universe? So Milton takes that, Milton's speaker, takes that question as something he is going to justify and explain. Uh, justify the ways of God to man. Right? Explain God to man. Now, as we saw, the first thing he does is he goes to hell. He goes into the realm of chaos and pandemonium where Satan and the rebel angels have been cast down. And the reason he seems to do that first, among other things, is because the speaker himself actually may have more in common with the way that the satanic mind works than the way, for example, God's mind works. So in Protestant theology or any kind of Christian orthodoxy, any kind of Christian theology, the idea that human beings could know the mind of God is absurd. Uh, God approaches, uh, or God dwells, the scripture says, in unapproachable light. God cannot be known by his creatures. There's an infinite gulf between the creator and the creature. God is not a large being or person in the world. God is not like us. He's not a projection of us in some big Zeus-like way. He is not like us in any way. The scriptures would say, you know, you cannot know the mind of God, right? And it is foolish for people to assume that they can understand the mind of God. And so then what does that leave Milton with? Well, if he's going to try to justify the ways of God to man, at some point he's going to have to account for God's action, God's role, God's presence. 
He doesn't do it right away, though. The first thing he does is says, let me account for Satan. <laughs> let, let, me, let me go into the place where the rebel angels fell. Let me, let me explore what the satanic mind is like, this narcissistic mind that feeds on itself, traps itself. First, he does that, and I think in part it's because as a fallen human being himself, he is as or more accustomed to the dark than he is to the light. And so I think when book three happens, we have this incredible moment where he has now sort of left the hellish landscape, and he's now going to attempt to describe God in his heaven. Now, that could be blasphemy, right? That could be something that you're not allowed to do. Or if you're going to do that, you would just read scripture. Like, how could you write a poem or speak this poem to life that attempts to say something scripture hasn't already said? What, what are you going to do? You're going to invent God as a character. You're going to give God lines. You're going to give God dialogue that's not in the Bible. I mean, it's a really crazy kind of radical enterprise to even undertake. And yet, he is attempting this to justify the ways of God to men. So when you get to book three, and you get to these lines. You have to think of Milton Speaker as this fallen human being who himself is trying to struggle with how to explain or understand or comprehend God, as we all do. Um, and so when he opens book three, he says this. He says, Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn, or of the eternal co-eternal beam, may I express thee unblamed. In other words, he's asking God, like, is this okay? <laughs> like, am I allowed to talk about you? Uh, he's, it's, it's in the form of an entreaty or a, a prayer. Um, he is saying, hail, holy light. So he's acknowledging God. And then he's saying, may I express thee unblamed? Like, am I going to get in trouble for this? Is this okay? Is this something that I'm even allowed to do? Or is this blasphemy? Is this hubris? Is this idolatry? Is this completely confused? He, he describes God in that scriptural language of unapproachable light, dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee, bright effluence of bright essence increate. Or, hearest thou rather pure ethereal stream, whose fountain who shall tell, before the sun, before the heavens thou wert, and at the voice of God, as with a mantle didst invest the rising world of waters dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite, thee I revisit now with bolder wing, escaped the Stygian pool, though long detained in that obscure sojourn, while in my flight through utter and through middle darkness born with other notes than to the Orphean lyre I sung of chaos and eternal night, taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent, and up to reascend, though hard and rare, thee I revisit safe. So what he's saying is, I have just been in this hellish place, this, this landscape of the, the satanic, and now I'm trying to flee, escape, I mean it's incredible language, it's almost like he got, almost got trapped there. Um, Lewis talks about when he composed the screw tape letters that it was a it was an unhealthy, dangerous, and disturbing thing to actually spend that much time imagining the conversations and the mindset of demons, and that it had some impact on him, some impact on his psyche, on his soul. Milton Speaker is saying something like that. Now he's trying to escape the Stygian pool. That's the burning, sulfurous sort of chaos that the rebel angels had been cast down to. 
he's talking about escaping like it was a prison, like 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 it was closing him in, like he was there too long. If you read Paradise Lost, he's there for two full books. It's a long time to be in the mind of Satan. He explores that, but he takes so much time doing that, the darkness that is in that section, in those those realms, becomes maybe too comfortable. And there's something like the recognition that he needs to get out of there before he becomes a party or a member of that place. You can't spend so long in evil places without it infecting you yourself. And so he describes this hail holy light. He describes this almost like, like geographically, like he has flown from and through this darkness across chaos, across Hades, this hellish landscape, away from the rebel angels. That he has flown out, 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 up, 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 and like broken through and finally can see the divine light. Hail, holy light. That, that is like an acknowledgement of being able to recognize or see something that he wasn't seeing before. It's almost like he has cracked through this dark ceiling and he is saying, hail, holy light. And then his entreaty to God is, is, please let me into that place. Let me into the heavenly place. Let me into places as a poet, as the speaker, as the imaginer of these things. Let me now talk about you. Is that okay? May I express the unblamed? And so it is really, um, it's tenuous. I mean, is it okay? Where in Scripture does it say you can imagine God's dialogue in heaven? <laughs> like that's, that is not obvious in any way, especially to a radical Protestant who is very careful about guarding God's revelation as the only way that God can be known. Nothing can be added to. Think of St. Paul, right? Uh, if an angel of light gives you any other gospel, or, or St. John, right? If anyone adds anything to this book, let them be accursed. And so he is adding to the book. He is expanding or amplifying the book in some ways. He is attempting to be faithful doing so. But it is not obvious that this is okay. And, and he is fleeing. It says, though long detained, he is escaping this dark place he has probably grown a little too comfortable or accustomed to in the satanic mind. So then he entreats and he describes God in these really, I mean, abstract metaphysical ways, right? Light, ethereal stream, co-eternal beam. This could be Platonism. This could be Neoplatonism. This could be any number of super abstract ways of talking about God or deity or the one. It doesn't sound yet in any way like the Christian God. Now, it does say an unapproachable light or an unapproached light, and that is a reference that we would recognize from Scripture. But it's still very abstract. And I, this is an important point. This speaker, if it's true that he as a fallen being has maybe a little too much in common with the satanic because the satanic is twisted, distorted by hubris and sin in the way that human beings often are, then for him to imagine God first, he doesn't imagine God personally right away. He imagines God as an abstraction. Now, if you've ever experienced alienation from God, if you've ever experienced that God was not present to you, if you're a Christian, if you're a person who, who has a relationship with God, if you've ever experienced that, God becomes increasingly abstract. And people say, how's your walk? Or, you know, how's your discipleship? How's your faith? You know, and, and you're not, you don't really have words that spring to mind, right? God feels, what we say? We say God feels very far away. Well, far away is just another way of saying an abstraction, right? God feels less personal, less immediate, less for me. 
less present, less understandable, less intimate, less communicable, less, less, less. And so the hail holy light may sound like, oh, some great, you know, celebration or um, some breaking through and okay, but it's also very abstract and in no way immediately personal. It could be any abstract principle, any abstract reality, any abstract deity at that point. It could be some sort of deism. So when he gets to the line in 15, and then I guess it's 16, and he says, no, let's say 19, uh, taught by the heavenly muse he was. In other words, the spirit sort of gave him inspiration, he's claiming, to venture down the dark descent to describe those things that he described in hell, and up to reascend, though hard and rare, right? This whole process, he's saying, he has been entreating the spirit. Now he says, thee I revisit safe. So he does now recognize the the-ness of God. This is an ancient sort of philosophical thing. But the is a personalized expression, like thou and I, right? It's like there's a relational term there. Um, it's like saying you, right? Um, so that is a personal designation. Thee I revisit safe and feel thy sovereign vital lamp. Okay, so this is getting a little more personal. It's feel thy sovereign vital lamp. That sounds like sensory. That sounds like the warmth of a fire, right? Now the light is not an abstraction purely. It's not just some platonic light of illumination. But now thy feeling thy sovereign vital lamp is the experience, like, like warmth of the sun on the skin, right? Or the warmth of a fire on your skin. You can feel now. It's almost locational. It's almost like it's becoming more intimate. He's saying, feel thy sovereign vital lamp. Thee I revisit safe. But then he says this, but thou revisits not these eyes. And so here's the move where he's saying, I have been in dark places exploring dark things. I believe I had divine aid and authorization to do that. Now as I revisit God, and attempt to turn my poetic subject back to the good God, and I revisit this place, I, I, I acknowledge the holy light, the unapproachable, the abstract, the perfection of God, eternal co-eternal beam, all this metaphysical language. I, I feel thy sovereign vital lamp. I acknowledge he's getting closer. There's a warmth that's starting to be able to be realized. I revisit thee safe, but thou revisits not these eyes. So now his blindness becomes explicit. His eyes cannot see this light, right? He cannot see actual, literal, visible anything. The thou revisits not. Now, what that's interesting, the interesting thing about that is it's implying that it's like placing the action or the non-action with God. You do not revisit these eyes. I revisit thee safe. Like, I, I have returned to you. You have not returned to these eyes. In other words, he is not able to fully connect with or access. It almost is, it's almost blame. Thou revisits not these eyes. When, when we experience suffering or loss, there is almost always some sense somewhere. Sometimes it's naive. Sometimes it's fleeting. Sometimes it's profound that we have been let down, that we are suffering an injustice. Um, to lose your sight at the age of 44, 
to have a lot of life ahead of you, to have spent 44 years seeing, I mean, you could say is almost even more perverse than to be born blind. There is something subtly, there is some suffering, there is some there is some alienation. You can just hear the rest of the line. Thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. Like, I'm trying. He's looking for God, but God is not allowing him to see. He remains blind. You think of Jesus healing blind people in the scripture, right? Milton has most of the scripture memorized, word for word, in Greek and in Hebrew. I mean, he, he, there is nothing that is not in his mind present about the revelation of God. So for his speaker to say that his eyes roll in vain to find God's light, God's understanding. Light is always illumination. It's always uh, apprehension. It's always comprehension, understanding. To understand something, right? You have the little cartoon light bulb. Ding! I get it, right? I see it. Thou revisest not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. So thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled, yet not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt. So what he's saying is in his blindness and in this dark place where he cannot see God, and you might say, well, who can? But in his suffering, in his blindness, in his loss, in his alienation, he feels from God. And he's searching for God. By the way, uh, round thou cast thou, thou baleful, thy, his baleful eyes. I mean, that is exactly a description he makes of Satan when Satan awakes in hell. Uh, you know, casting his eyes about that roll in vain. I mean, it's almost a word for word. Uh, the image is very similar. Um, Satan feels wronged, right? Thrown down unfairly, treated unjust, unjustly. And the speaker has some slight experience of that some slight if not strong grievance why justify the ways of god to men maybe he needs to justify the ways of god to himself maybe he's he's searching for an answer that is deeply personal related to his suffering maybe it's not some wonderful evangelistic process or project that he's undertaking maybe he has been cut off from god alienated in his experience of suffering from the god he loves and so this whole thing perhaps is coming out of his need to find and to see, to know God again through his suffering, um, despite his suffering. Um, maybe that's why we get this entire poem. And so, so when he is looking, he says this, he says, Yet not the more seaside to wander where the muses haunt, clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill, smit with the love of sacred song what he's saying is in the darkness i mean like for him there is no dawn so he wakes up and there's no sunlight right he he knows time only probably by his just typical sleep schedule and by the sounds he would hear outside his door and the sounds he would hear in the street below and the sounds of the people that may uh, also habit you know uh, inhabit the house that he lives in whether it's his children or, or whatever um by this point um his wife is dead um, so just his experience of time and day is, is, is probably challenging, but what he says is in his darkness, it doesn't keep him from, from wandering where the muses haunt. In other words, he has in his mind the poetic canon. He has in his mind sacred song 
and classical poetry. So what that means is he's saying, even though he cannot see the physical world, he is able in his mind to go into poetic worlds. He is able in his mind to go into places in his memory of beauty and richness and depth. I mean, could you, could you imagine almost fully retaining every novel you ever read or every story you ever heard and being able to sit in your chair at whatever time of day, completely cut off from the world and otherwise, and go into those worlds instead? Yet not the more seaside to wander where the muses, where the muses haunt. That, that, that's poetry, that's fiction, that's, that's the land of literature, that's the land of imagination. So he's able to go into that place. In other words, perhaps the poetic is a form of therapy. Perhaps the poetic and the imaginative is, is him trying to experience the world that has now been taken away from him because of his blindness. Um, yet not the more seaside to wander where the muses haunt. Clear spring, clear spring. You know where I can see a clear spring? In my mind, in my imagination, and through the poetry of great writers. Um, I can go and visit these pastoral language kind of these these hymns and songs, or even just the script, the scripture, sacred song, right? The poet, you know, Psalm twenty-three, King David, right? Um, these kind of still waters, this kind of language where he can see again through poetry and imagination what he can no longer see in actuality and in his waking life, and so he says it hasn't kept him from that. Smit with the love of sacred song. He's nourished by it. He's fed off it, right? It's like, uh, you know, uh, Tolkien's Cauldron of Stories, or it's like Lewis's Wood Between the Worlds. These pools of story, these pools of worlds he can dip into and explore and live in, Care Paravel and Narnia and all these kind of things. He can go into the worlds because his mind is so vertiginous and so unbelievably strong still unbelievably educated he's been exposed to the richest things human beings had created to this point and those are still his and he's able to go to those places so poetry here is like offering the world to him again it's a form of mediation and access that his his eyesight once would have provided it for the actual world now it's his poetic faculty or his imaginative and his memory that can provide this stroll through flowery brooks beneath etc etc and he then he says including Sion Hill which is Zion which is the scripture the scripture is also still a world open to him because he has it in his mind remember he had the scripture virtually memorized and so at any moment he could turn to Colossians he could turn to the book of Exodus he could turn to you know Isaiah he could turn to any place in scripture and almost verbatim spend time with the prophets and then he mentions nightly I visit. In other words, this is what he does in the evenings, right? Instead of just sort of crying himself to sleep or feeling completely alone. Nightly I visit these places. Nightly I visit nor sometimes forget those other two equaled with me in fate. So were I equal with them in renown, blind Thamorus and blind Maonides and Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old. He starts thinking about in literature and especially in ancient literature, the idea of the prophet was the blind prophet. The, the prophet was always the seer and the seer did not see with physical sight. The seer saw what others could not see, the truth. And so the seer was often blind. Uh, even if you just like remember like Thor, the movie, like you think of the seer standing watch and he's blind and he's staring out into like the abyss of the universe to just keep watch. And the idea is he can see what is actually there, even though he cannot see uh, physically. And so the ancient tradition of the poet or the prophet 
as blind insight, as the one who, who's lost his external vision and thus can see to the heart of things. Now he's saying, maybe I'm in that company. Maybe that's what this is all about. Maybe I've taken up residence with the blind prophets of old, both in the classical tradition and, and then even in the, in the spiritual tradition, all right, approaching some of the Judeo-Christian ideas as well. Um, and so he's trying, to, he's trying to wrestle with what have I left to me? How, how do I access understanding? How do I approach God? What, what can I do and see with these things? And yet... He says, even though he has this, right, the wakeful bird sings darkling and in shadiest covert hid tunes her nocturnal note. He says this, this is one of my favorite lines in the whole poem. Thus with the year seasons return, but not to me returns a day. So even after he explores what is available to him through the poetic and through the imaginative and through his memory of scripture, he still comes back to the real world and says, Thus with the year seasons return, but not to me returns day. He says, I don't see the return of the day. Or the sweet approach of even or morn, or sight of vernal bloom, or summer's rose, or flocks or herds, or human face divine. This is, I mean, uh, there's two or three moments in these 12 books that are crushingly sad and this is one of them no more returns to me right it's the seasons the sight of vernal bloom like he he he, he it's almost like he's afraid he's he's not even going to be able to remember because he can't see these things anymore but then that last one is even the most shocking and the most devastating it's not just flocks or herds but human face divine uh wittgenstein the the great um, philosopher said that the human face is the closest picture we have of the soul. And when you think about communication theory and everything else, it's unbelievable how, ab- how abstract communication becomes when you can't see someone's face, when you can't see their body. You know this if you've ever tried to text someone, it's gone wrong. Um, I was texting someone the other day, and I was, I, one of my responses to the text was like, ha, 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 ha. And the person was like, excuse me? And I was like, well... Didn't read the tone right there. I'm flying blind, man. When you have a text, when you just have a text, you don't have a face, you just have a stupid text buzzing, your phone, there it is, text, just language. It's disconnected, it's disembodied. I can't see a smile, I can't see. It's incredible how much you implicitly read off of the human face. It's absolutely unbelievable how much meaning is communicated by the human face and expression. And he is saying the human face is not, available to him anymore so he can he can hear people's words he can he can converse with people he can hear them in the streets etc etc but he cannot see their expression he cannot see them and because he's a christian he also says human face divine we're made in the image of god if he is trying to revisit or reconnect with or understand god in the midst of his suffering one of the things he cannot see God through is the human face. You know, it's no small thing that the Scriptures calls the uh, believing community the body of Christ. It's no small thing that we are described as being created in the image of God. That is not a small thing at all. It's no small thing that Christ incarnated himself into a person with a face. And yet Milton says, or Milton's speaker says, 
that that is not available to him anymore. Um, I remember a buddy saying to me that he had always heard growing up that God loved him. Always heard that God loved him. Knew that and, you know, believed it as far as you're supposed to believe things and and, and felt it to be true. Um, But he said it wasn't until he got married and this woman knew him and knew everything about him and still loved him that he realized and experienced the love of God. And in part what he was saying, and this is very profound, but in part what he was saying is when he had this tangible face, this tangible expression of God's love, he understood God's love. It's, it's impossible to overstate how we are designed as relational creatures. It's impossible to overstate how much we derive from friendships, from intimacy with others, from spousal intimacy, and to have the human face. I mean, human face is unbelievable. Like, if you ever see a kid, like, in the, uh, I don't know, you're in line at Target or something, like, and you see a kid, you know, you just, like, I don't know, unless you're a psychopath, like, you don't, like, frown at a kid, you know? You just, like, light up at a kid. And it's weird, because it's a stranger. It's not your kid. Like, what the heck are you doing? But there's something in you. It's just, like, the kid's just, like, all innocent, just staring at you. Maybe they smile at you. Maybe they're looking confused or they're scared. And and it just prompts you. You just start, you want to, you make these huge, freakish expressions of joy, you know? Like this smile that looks like the Joker. You know, like, you just start reacting to the human face. The kid can't even talk sometimes. These babies, right? It's just over the mom's shoulder, right? Mom's back to you. You're waiting in this line. It's taking forever. And you just respond to the human face in a way you don't respond to anything on the planet. It's just in us to see somehow the soul in the human face, to be able to connect with someone because of this face-to-faceedness. That's how intimacy is described, right? Face-to-face. That's how lovers are described by Lewis, right? Uh, face-to-face, right? You see, you're, you're able to look upon someone's aspect and see the subtleties and the movements of their brow and things like this. And Milton Speaker says, yet not the more return these things to me. Not this, not this, not flocks, not herds, not human face divine. And then he puts an even finer point on that when he says, but cloud instead, in other words, I don't, I don't get to see these things, but instead cloud, right? Like this perfect glaucoma. They think he had just sort of retinal separation that is just detached, you know, they didn't, didn't know how to treat certain things or anything, right, when it came to the eyes, right? Um, and so his experience of, of visibility is like a permanent dark cloud, he says surrounds me this cloud ever during dark surrounds me that sounds like hell from the cheerful ways of men cut off like can you imagine like hearing people laugh but not being able to ever see them smile and for the book of knowledge fair presented with a universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out uh, the medievals always said that God has revealed himself in two books, the book of nature and the book of revelation. Milton has the book of revelation, but the book of nature is closed to him. Wisdom at that entrance, right? It, it, the knowledge of God that he would normally get. And, and scripture would say you can get quite a bit of knowledge of God by just observing reality and living in the natural world. 
You can get a lot about the orderliness of God, about the goodness of God, by looking at human relationships and experiencing those and understanding those. You get all sorts of understanding about God and his government um, from the natural world. So they called it the book of nature. They called it this book of knowledge fair. And he says, it's quite shut out. That book is closed. If he's trying to reconnect, revisit God, understand God, find God, this is what people need to do when they're suffering, when they lose their way, when they feel cut off, when they feel like God's far away, he's distant. They need to try to reconnect with God. He's desperate. And he says, but wisdom at that entrance, the world, the human face divine, all of these natural ways of being able to read and see and potentially see God, quite shut out. No wisdom there. So much the rather I. So then he says, but what I'm left with is this, this, this project, this, this other book of Revelation that he's exploring. He's trying to explore the world of Scripture, but he's trying to explore it himself with this huge poetic exploration. And so he says, so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward. If you, if you can't revisit these eyes, that roll, these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray, so much thou rather, rather celestial light shine inward, and the mind through all her powers irradiate there in his inward soul, in his spirit, there plant eyes. All mist from thence purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. I mean, this sounds like where he began, right? What is dark in me illumine, what is low raise and support, that with no middle flight, right? That I may attain to this high project, this high argument, and justify the ways of God to himself. I think that's what he's trying to do. I think he's begging God to appear to him so that he can know he's not alone in his suffering, so that he can know that he has not been abandoned by God, even though the world has been abandoned to his sight. And so he begs God, there in this place of my soul and spirit, there clear out that darkness of my heart. Clear out the darkness that found it too comfortable to be in the Stygian pool with the satanic mind. Clear out that place that is too accustomed to sin, that is too accustomed to perversity and despair, that is too familiar with the fall. In that place, plant eyes. Help me see. Illumine that darkness inside my heart. Show me yourself in those places. And let me see you again. So I'm going to put the bookmark there. That's just the pro-M of book three. He then moves to describing the heavenly realm and God and his heaven. So he, he attempts this incredible feat of description, maybe hubris, you can debate that. Um, but I just want to show what I think is motivating and what is actually animating um, this project. And it is the very real, very normal experience of human suffering and the desire to know that God is still there and to see God where he has otherwise been absent in our experience. So we will return uh, with another section and another uh, place and another study and another theme 
uh, on another day. But thank you for joining us as we continue to explore John Milton's Paradise Lost. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe, and your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed. <laughs>